0: Hello, and welcome to Annual Reviews Audio, part of the conversation series from Annual Reviews, where insightful research begins. I'm your host, Anna Rasquad-Paz. In each episode of our show, we feature top scientists in fields ranging from astrophysics to sociology. Today, I talk to Aaron Bernstein, Associate Director and Programme Director of Climate, Energy and Health at the Harvard School of Public Health. He's also an instructor in pediatrics at the Harvard Medical School and a physician in medicine at the Children's Hospital in Boston. Dr. Bernstein wrote the article Biological Diversity and Public Health for the 2014 Annual Review of Public Health. Dr. Bernstein, welcome.
1: Delighted to be here.
0: All right. So the first thing I'd like to do is uh, to introduce your article and tell us why biodiversity is important to our health.
1: Well, that's a great question to start with, because biodiversity has not traditionally been a subject that concerns public health, but uh, that is changing. Uh, Biodiversity is a term that refers to the variety of life on Earth. Uh, It's the sum total of all the genes, species, and ecosystems on the planet. And in almost every conceivable way, it's the diversity of life that makes possible the pillars of what keeps us healthy, Uh, be it the air we breathe, the food we eat, uh, or the medicines we take. And so as there has been a great shift in life on Earth, especially in the past hundred years and in the diversity of life, um, it's become increasingly important to understand what's at stake for human health when it comes to changes or the outright loss of biological diversity.
0: Let's look at the slides that you've chosen to, to illustrate your article. Um, the first slide we have is a pie chart looking at medicines approved by the FDA. So what does it show us?
1: Perhaps the most concrete way that people will understand how the diversity of life may influence their health is in uh, medication. So many people will know, for example, that aspirin comes from the bark of the willow tree, um, that uh, some blood pressure medicines like the ACE inhibitors um, or the beta block derived from other uh, species Um, But I think there's a general perception that in uh, drug discovery today that science and and biomedical science is relying ever more on uh, human intuition to design drugs. And and that's certainly true, and so-called rational drug design is incredibly important to the discovery of new drugs. But I think it's also important to look at the new drugs that are coming onto market and understand where they came from, and that's what this paragraph shows. Uh, if you look at all of the newly approved medicines uh, by the United States Food and Drug Administration between 1981 and 2010, uh, just over half would really not exist if uh, there weren't some organism producing uh, either the exact molecule that became a drug or uh, a very near relative of it that provided the inspiration for scientists to develop it further into a drug. And and I think that's a crucial uh, point because... Even today, with all that science has to offer, we still rely heavily upon nature. The other point that's important to note about this is that this is really the tip of the iceberg. Uh, There's a lot of uncertainty as to drug development and what molecules, as promising as they may be, may in fact be licensed for use. The fact that we rely upon biodiversity for medicines today is a very important piece of this interface of biodiversity and health. And it also is important to underscore the point that There's a tremendous amount of information to be learned by exploring uh, nature and its molecules uh, about how our own bodies work in health and disease.
0: Right. And then you have a couple of slides that show um, the major classes of antibiotics. You
1: know, there's uh, this 55% roughly of new drugs, but it turns out uh, that for certain classes of drugs, uh, anti-cancer agents and antibiotics in particular, that the reliance of medicine upon nature is yet greater. Uh, There are about 14 classes of antibiotics uh, uh, available to physicians today uh, in the United States, and of those 14, which are illustrated here, uh, 10 of those classes uh, would not exist if we hadn't looked at nature uh, to provide them for us. And that really isn't terribly surprising because most of the antibiotics used we use were designed by microbial uh, organisms, bacteria and fungi, uh, to ward off their competitors. And so we have harnessed that uh, ability uh, to make antibiotics. I think it's also important to note that bacteria and fungi that produce these substances almost never produce them one at a time. Uh, they often will produce them in combinations. And they've been duking it out for a long time, <laughs> uh, greater than... Uh, humans have been around, so microbial life on Earth uh, predates uh, animals by billions of years. So uh, there's a good start in understanding how uh, uh, microbes fight each other off by examining the compounds they use themselves.
0: So next we have um, an image of the seed bank in Svalbard in Norway. So what is this and why is it important?
1: Yeah, so another critical interface between biodiversity and health is what biodiversity means to food production. And the picture here is of the Svalbard Seed Bank in Norway, which has uh, in its vast storehouse, which is kept at about minus 18 degrees Celsius in the permafrost, uh, about 800,000 seeds uh, of food crops, largely. And that is done to serve as a Uh, essentially an insurance policy against the loss of diversity in food crops for humans. Uh, It became very clear uh, starting in the 90s uh, that as uh, the human enterprise expanded over greater territory, the economy globalized, uh, and climate change really started to rear its head, that there was an increasing probability that uh, there could be a situation in which Uh, we might lose uh, a specific strain in a crop that could be extremely valuable in the future. And so the seed bank, among others, was established to store this germplasm, this biodiversity that, for instance, could be used in a future world in which we need much more heat-resistant crops or salt-resistant crops or potentially crops that were more tolerant to heavy metal uh, pollution. Um, among other considerations. Uh, and uh, this is uh, one of the critical pieces of biodiversity and its relation to health, in that it is the diversity of life on Earth that allows us to grow crops and the variety of crops that are essential to human nutrition.
0: Okay, next we're looking at a photograph of uh, large tree seedlings. So what, is, what does this tell us?
1: So this is another interface between biodiversity. And health that pertains to food production, uh, I will often ask students, uh, how much does it take to grow an apple? Uh, And the answer, of course, is it's not one. Uh, And so while we have the seed banks like Svalbard, I think it's a bit misleading to believe that if we just have a seed, for a specific crop that we will have enough to sustain uh, the food resources that we need and this picture of of the large tree seedling is designed to show the root system. Now you'll see in this picture that going uh, into the soil there are some white strands and some brown strands. Well the brown strands are the plant's roots and the white strands uh, you'll see if you look closely have some white nodules on them and and those white uh, filaments are what are known as mycorrhizal fungi uh, the mycorrhizal fungi are a group of fungi uh, that have the greatest, uh, most extensive symbiosis with plants on Earth. They have co evolved with plants, came onto land uh, 400 million years ago. And the relationship between the fungus and the plant is uh, designed to have the plant make sugars through photosynthesis and uh, deliver those sugars to the fungus. And in return, the fungus is able to deliver, uh, among other things, phosphorus to plants, um, uh, some essential minerals. Um, There's also evidence that mycorrhizal fungi may protect plants against, uh, for example, heavy metals. So uh, this is an enormously important relationship between plants and, in this case, uh, fungus that speaks to uh, the the importance of other species, and in this case a subterranean species, uh, to food production. Um, of course there are many other uh, relationships among species that are critical to food production and we're going to turn to one of those next when we talk about bats.
0: Yeah, so that's uh, a that's great transition to the next slide. We're looking at a bat with white-nose syndrome.
1: Bats are pollinators, along with what are more familiar uh, organisms such as honeybees. Um, There are thousands of pollinator species on the planet. Uh, For human food production, it is largely the produce that we eat that requires a pollinator, fruits and vegetables. And uh, we are witnessing some rather striking reductions in pollinators, uh, particularly bees, but also bats. And uh, this picture shows a bat that's been infected with the white nose syndrome. A white nose syndrome is a fungus uh, known as Geomyces destructans. Uh, it's killing off bats by the millions in the United States. Likely going to lead to the extinction of one bat species in the United States. It's been introduced, we believe, from Europe into caves in the United States. Uh, bats are not just pollinators; they also eat insects and. Uh, It's been estimated that in the United States, bats provide around $3.7 billion per year of pest control services for free. We spend in the United States uh, about $4.5 billion on pesticides. So the services that these bats are providing are essentially equivalent to the services that we're substituting for them and other creatures that eat insects by spraying chemicals which may have unwanted side effects. And again, uh, if you think about uh, the ability of uh, mycorrhizal fungi to deliver phosphorus to plants, um, it's been estimated that, for example, that in a citrus, you can have about uh, 500 pounds per acre of phosphorus delivered by mycorrhizal fungi to the citrus uh, trees. Uh, And when we lose that, we have to give more synthetic fertilizers. In uh, with bats, uh, with the white nose syndrome, we are potentially uh, forcing ourselves to spray more chemicals to replace the service that bats were providing for free.
0: So we're, we're, we're going to move on to the next slide and look at extinctions per thousand species per millennium. And I, you know, I'm, I'm looking at this and I'd love for you to explain to me what is so striking about it.
1: We've talked about a few of the interfaces between biodiversity and health for medicines, uh, for food. Uh, we could have talked about infectious diseases. If you want to know more about that, you can read the article. Uh, and w- what this graph shows is that as we come to understand more and more what's at stake for health with diversity, we're also learning that biodiversity is in peril today uh, in a way that hasn't happened in a very long time. And that's what's shown here. So uh, uh, on the left of this purple, uh, we have evidence from the fossil record of the rate at which it went extinct before humans were around. And if you compare those rates of extinction uh, to present rates of extinction, uh, we're seeing rates roughly 100 times what occurred. And looking forward, it seems clear that rates of species extinction are going to be much higher, specifically because of climate change, which is disrupting all kinds of relationships among species and uh, forcing some species to lose their habitat that is climate sensitive. So uh, this is a trend that's very concerning, given what we know about why biodiversity matters to health.
0: Yeah, and next, and next we're going to look at, um, at a history of mass extinctions.
1: Right, so uh, this graph shows Earth's past five great mass extinctions. So in the history of life on Earth, we really know about five great extinctions of life going back uh, over 400 million years ago, uh, to the late Ordocivian, where about uh, over half of the genera on Earth uh, were lost. The most recent extinction event was about 65 million years ago. That's when an asteroid struck the Earth in the Gulf of Mexico and uh, caused a huge cloud to cover the Earth, and about 50% of genera, uh, including the dinosaurs. And it was in that void uh, that uh, humans uh, evolved. We were one of the uh, (laughs) organisms to fill that ecological niche. Species uh, lost today uh, put us on par uh, with uh, the last great extinction event, and there have been some scientists who have suggested that we are living right now in the midst of the Earth's sixth great extinction event. And I and I, I say that not to um, cause dismay, although it is somewhat dismaying, but I think it's easy for people to look outside and see a beautiful Uh, park, and birds, and whatever may be in your backyard, and say, you know, what could possibly be wrong with life on Earth? Uh, But I think it's really important to look at the science here and understand that we are, in fact, living in one of the great simplifications of the biosphere ever realized. Of course, the difference uh, between those past extinctions and the present extinction is that we have, uh, humans have, the ability to affect what happens immensely.
0: So the last slide I'm looking at is uh, titled The Final Common Pathway.
1: Yeah. So the major causes of species loss and biodiversity loss more uh, broadly today are uh, habitat loss, which is pictured on this slide uh, primarily, and then uh, a slew of other causes, invasive species, pollution, over-harvesting and infection. So infection, we talked about white nose syndrome. There's a fungus also killing off large numbers of amphibians. Uh, Primates in West Africa are being killed by Ebola virus. Lots of examples there. Over-harvesting, the main example today is uh, over-harvesting of seafood from the world's oceans. A large percentage of the world's fish have been consumed and uh, the sustainability of many fisheries in the world is really in doubt. Uh, Pollution, uh, there is pollution that has been affecting species around the world. Sometimes it's specific local pollution, such as what happened uh, with oil spills uh, in Alaska or in the Gulf of Mexico, Um, and sometimes it's more global pollution. So we see, for example, in places like Svalbard where the seabank is, life being contaminated with persistent pollutants that were produced uh, uh, in in the United States. Um, Invasive species, although the picture is small, uh, the picture under invasive species uh, shows kudzu, which is a vine that, quote, uh, ate the South, end quote. And the South being the South the United States, this is an, a vine that was intentionally introduced into the South at uh, the roadsides uh, to prevent erosion. It turns out that the vine uh, was uh, completely <laughs> adept at overrunning everything in sight. And in this picture, it's overgrowing trees and posts. So invasive species are another major cause. But Again, the lion's share today of, of biodiversity loss is by habitat loss, largely deforestation, and that is largely for agricultural purposes, and particularly grazing of cattle, um, as well as in Southeast Asia for the plantation of palm oil. Uh, but uh, in industry, climate change is likely to go past all of the above uh, as the leading driver of biodiversity loss. Uh, I think it's a critically important point to recognize that all changes to uh, the environment, uh, be they infections, uh, uh, over-harvesting, pollution, invasives, or habitat loss, or even climate change, they all ultimately exert their effects upon the living world. And so biodiversity really is the final common pathway of all environmental change. Now, if you look at this slide, you'll see that all of these factors we can do something about. Um, And particularly when it comes to the two big hitters, habitat loss and climate change, we can have an immense influence on changing the course of these problems, whether it be deforestation or the amount of greenhouse gases that went into the atmosphere. And so uh, what's... uh, uh, amazing about living in the present moment is that science has told us enough about how our health depends on biodiversity about the state of biodiversity at present as it compares to the past and also about what we can do to dramatically manage the future of life on earth and so there's a really uh, extraordinary opportunity to protect uh, life on earth uh, today if for no other reason, and there are many reasons uh, to do this, for the sake of the health of people around the world.
0: Going from this last point, I just want to uh, conclude this interview by asking you, who should read this article? It's important enough that it, it sounds like you know your, your audience should be very broad. So who do you think should read this article in, in priority?
1: Well, I would be thrilled if it gained attention in the world of public health among public health experts to understand how the areas that public health has traditionally focused on be it infectious diseases, nutrition, environmental health, etc. Uh, how those disciplines interface with biodiversity and why this issue of biodiversity loss is so critically important for all those areas. I think it would also be relevant to people who are ecologists because ecologists often think about how changes to ecosystems matter to health um, but they don't uh, often go, in my view, far enough to understand really what is at stake for human well-being. Um, but, again, I, I think your point is well taken. I would, uh, this article is written to be accessible uh, by anyone. And I think if we're really to do what's necessary to protect biodiversity, uh, everybody has to know what's at stake for their own health. And my hope is that this article, in some small way, uh, will make that possible.
0: Well, Dr. Bernstein, thank you so very much for your time today.
1: You're most welcome, Anna. Thanks for the opportunity to do this.